Welcome to Crossing Over, a conversation where we look and listen with curiosity for God's presence in the stories of sacred scripture and in our own lives. I'm Sarah Nichols. And I'm Daniel Lucas. Okay, I actually have something to start with today. Perfect. You didn't, you, you have no idea what this is, what's, what's about to happen. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I got a question from a friend, <clears throat> a listener. Okay. That I thought it would be, um, it would be fun to start off with about Hagar, kind of about this. And so there's, there's two questions here. The one is, is labeled as not an actual question. And the second is related, is, is, is an actual question. Okay, but whatever. So, so Hagar, uh, did Hagar sin in all of this? Um, <clears throat> since slaves can't uh, freely choose their actions, is this a, is this a sin? Uh, and then the second question is related is, um, so are the things that we're made to do as slaves um, not things God would want us to repent for or repent of, especially because we may not have wanted to be doing them in the first place? <laughs> Ooh, wow. Right. Okay. <clears throat> What do you think about that? Do you, do you, um, what, is, what is the nature, what, 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 what do we do with the things that are imposed upon us? Yeah. Um, oh God. I mean, that's, that's almost, it's two questions because there's the sin question. Sure. And then there's the, I guess, culpability for that. If, if there is sin involved in it, are you culpable for it when it's been forced on you? Sure. Um, wow. Okay, how about okay. I, I've had a few yeah. days to think about yeah, it. So how have... would I tell you what I think, okay. and then you tell me what yeah, you yeah. think about what I think let's, about the let's questions? Let's go with that. Are, okay. So my first, well, the first thing that has to, I think, get untangled in order to engage with it well is a conversation about what sin is and what sin isn't, because that needs, I would want clarity on, on that. If by sin we mean the things that we do that make us God angry or put us in like difficult spots or like sh- or shame, mm-hmm. then then I I think that it's probably unhelpful to label those things as sin, right? Be- Agreed, hundred percent. But if I go with the wider what, and I think which is more accurate or what what Scripture is actually more concerned about is lives that are missing the mark. And if I think about yes. if I think about sin in those terms, and and we can keep shame and identity and value and all of those things at bay, then I think they are sins that we need to repent of, um, because uh, <laughs> uh, because they are deathly ways of living that we're participating in and that will create deathly futures that if we don't repent of, will continue, right? So repentance not being you saying, I'm sorry I did this, I was a bad person and now I won't be a bad person, that's not the conversation we're having. But, you know, when we do things we don't want to do, it creates ruts and habits in our life. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it is entirely appropriate to repent of how we've lived as slaves and the things we've done as slaves. I mean, you think about like people who didn't want to participate in atrocities, um, you know, even like some of the soldiers that come back from Vietnam and you start hearing about the, the, the nightmares and the trauma where they tell stories about, the, you know, they were following orders. They didn't want to mm-hmm. do them. They're repenting for their healing. Like repentance is healing. Yeah. So 
so my yeah, I guess my long answer is yes, because repentance is healing, and sin is any deathly thing that we're participating in, or any harmful thing we're participating in, and the why of it doesn't really come into play. Yeah, I I mostly agree with you. What so it, yeah, the, I I agree with your definition of sin and the culpability and our need for repentance, like for our, ourselves, and so that we can move forward. And no longer in the like deathly ways of living. Where I would maybe push back is that I don't think Hagar is comparable to the soldiers. I think Hagar is the person that the soldiers hurt. So, oh, absolutely. Okay. I, so I, left Hagar, I left Hagar. I left Hagar for the philosophical theological conversation. Okay. Here. I, yeah, okay. I don't think this is that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But totally yes, agree. I agree. Totally agree. I mean, I th- in one sense. Abram and Sarai are sinning in that they are they aren't trusting God to deliver upon his promise that he has promised them um, and they're taking it into their own hands instead of trusting him and that right. that is the sin and then they hurt another person yes. in doing so yeah the bottom and, of it is their how their trust isn't actualized in their life in this, right. this moment. Which is, again, we talked about this last time, totally understandable. They've been waiting a long time so that, that they're impatient and wanting to move things along. We, none none of us could cast judgment on them for that. Right. Doesn't mean it's right. I'm just right like... Yeah. 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 Um, whereas Hagar, so to answer the question she had about is Hagar sinning, I, I would say absolutely not in... Well, this gets tricky because it's like, well, what part of what Hagar? T- well, and what's like, sin? Like, what we, is sin? Is the fact yes. that she had sex with Abram a sin? Sure. In that regard, absolutely not, because she had no choice in that. How about the way she looks at Sarah? That then, absolutely, there is potential that that is a sin because it is not living in the way that would be according <laughs> to her own benefit. And just because people have done wrong to us doesn't give us like carte blanche to do whatever we want to them. So you could possibly hold her culpable in that, um, but not. Yeah, it's oh man, it's a good question because it's such a complicated question. I I actually don't think the word culpability does any um, has any help in how we're how we're looking at this situation. Sure. What would you use instead? I I think it's, um, I think it, I think it's definitely at play and it's definitely a question, but when we're talking about even like sin in this way, the, the question of who's like of culpability is if repentance is turning towards life and sin is anywhere we miss the mark and we turn towards death, then how or who, um, how we were turned or who turned us or any of those things are not first, second, third level questions. The question is, do we need to turn? And so we do. Whether it's our fault or not, it's still repentance. Sure. Um, so so in, in the, only in that way. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying culpability, responsibility, accountability don't matter. I'm saying as we're sort of imagining this conversation or this this moment, about did Hagar do anything wrong? The question is, what kind of death is Hagar carrying around in her, not whose fault is it? Sure. And we have to repent from things that aren't our fault. Yeah. Like the the family wounds we carry that we that were done to us, we have to repent of in order to not repeat them down on the next generation. 
Sure, sure. And and we have an out. We can go, it's not our fault. These things that happened to us, we didn't deserve any of it. So now what? Right. <laughs> it still requires repentance. It still requires a turning away or a turning towards or a change of mind about. Yeah. And I think that that comes in a reframing of what repentance is as Absolutely. well. Because um, I think the way many of us were raised, if we were raised in evangelical Christian homes, repentance is about admitting you were wrong, right. admitting you had done something Right. Uh, that needs forgiveness. It's about fault and restitution. Exactly. And that, like, maybe that's where I'm trapped in this culpability language because it's so ingrained in me when the reality isn't, it's not about culpability and it's not about, um, it's about us turning and returning to God, right. um, which all of us need, regardless of what we've done or where we come from. And yeah, I, um, this conversation reminded me of a quote that I just saw the other day by um, Kenneth Tanner. Uh-huh. Um, this was on his Instagram page yesterday. The only thing Jesus curses is a fig tree. Yeah. In Genesis 3, fig leaves are a sign of our ancestors' shame or a false perception that all the differences uncreated and created, heaven and earth, male and female, were now divisions instead of inherent unities. In the fig tree, Jesus curses our shame and our binary vision. Yep. And that just, it felt so relevant to the conversation we're having that it, totally. it's about shame. Yeah. The shame that comes with us not seeing and perceiving well and trusting God and acting on our own accord and all the things that come along with that. And what he, what Father Kenneth is doing right there is a huge part of what's happening here in like our conversations, right? Because the, if you read Jesus cursing the fig tree outside of context, a, a deep connection to Genesis, then you're like, what's, man, he's angry and he's just like taking it out on this right. fig like, tree. Like, this is weird. <laughs> right. I'd hate to be in the room with, with him when he gets mad and he's having a bad day. And, but it's these deep connections that, these deep symbolic acts that the symbolism only shimmers for you when you're like, yeah, but what are fig trees about biblically speak? Like when yeah. we're talking about right in the fig tree is the nat, it's like a national symbol for, for Israel. It's, it's our shame. Yeah. So Jesus's action is provocative and, and deeply like right. connected to what, what the fig tree has been. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, I saw, I saw that too. I was like, man, I'm dropping my phone like it's yeah. a mic. Okay, should we hop into the uh yeah. into the thing? I I love the questions, so if I don't know, we could email them if you got yeah. them or text us if you know us or co- you can comment on the the Substack page or, you know, send a a pigeon. Uh what do you what do you call those a mail what a mail pigeon? A p- a pigeon. <laughs> or your owl, maybe you got to, you know, yeah. Harry Potter it and send us an owl. Yeah. It's fine. Exactly. Man, I am really popular today. I'm going to have to edit that out. Okay. <laughs> At least it came outside of main uh, conversation. I'm not going to edit it out. We'll leave it in. Okay. So so we sh- should we start? Sure. Okay. Um, where, where are we? What are we doing? Yeah. So we, last week, and if you haven't listened to, to last week's podcast, we highly recommend you uh, getting the background of where we're going today. Um, but we're in Genesis 16, talking about when Abram and Sarai... Um, have the great idea to uh, use Hagar, their Egyptian slave, 
in order to have a child um, because Sarah is, and it's Sarah's idea. Um, but then when Sarah gets what she asks for, she turns out to not be too pleased with it and it creates some issues between them. So uh, for more on that and a discussion on that, on what happens there, uh, listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. Um, we ended last week um, with Sarai being upset about Hagar actually getting pregnant, even though it was her plan to do this thing. And um, Abram's reaction to Sarai is, here's your maid in your hands, deal with her however seems good in your eyes. So Sarai afflicted her so that she had to flee from her. So where we left is that Hagar has fled Sarai. So verse seven? Yep. So we're in verse seven. All right. Should I read it? Yes. <clears throat> All right. How far do you want me to go? Ooh, um, Just say stop. <laughs> yeah. An angel of the Lord found her by spring of water in the desert at the spring on the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, handmaid of Sarai, from where have you come and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be counted because of their great number. The angel of the Lord said to her, I gave my maid to you. And when she, what? When she saw she conceived, I be, oh, I'm my, I got a Hebrew Bible uh-huh. and I'm reading it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading it like you. Uh, because the angel of the Lord said to her, I'll fix it. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You shall name him Yishmael, for the Lord has heard your prayer. He will be a wild, uncivilized man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And in the presence of all his brothers, he will dwell. Stop there. Yeah, let's stop there. Okay. That was a lot. Okay. That was a lot. Okay. Um, Okay, so Hagar has fled, and Yahweh's messenger found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Um, do you remember what Shur means? Wall, isn't it wall? Yeah, wall. So there's this uh, this way in the Hebrew language that we just mi- we can miss things in our translations, um, even if they put the word Shur in there because it's a title of a place. Right. But there's also a way of reading it that she was on the way to a wall, like almost that she has hit a wall in the desert that she can't go any farther. Yeah. Um, so that would at least be an idea or apparent in, for an original Hebrew listener. Right. Um, and I find it interesting. So the spring of water or the fountain is the word ayin, uh, which means face. Or sorry, eye, yeah, yeah. sight to see, yep. um, also fountain. So it's just interesting that here in the wilderness that the word for fountain is also the word for like sight right. and eye. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? <clears throat> I mean, I think it says a lot about tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is surely a, a, a tearful moment. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's an it's an interesting thing to consider what our tears are for, are about, what they do, how they function, kind of that whole line of consideration. There's a way in which when we when we have tears, some of us sometimes feel like um 
we want them to be gone. <laughs> yeah. Anything to get out of this space, anything to get out of this moment. Um, but, but, and I'm thinking here of Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Mm. There's a, a real, uh, there's a reality to tears mm-hmm. that they connect us to being attentive to the moment we're in. Yeah. If you're in tears, um, there's something real you're experiencing. Even if you're like a mat, even if you're reading it wrong, right? Even if you are, you're in, you're in tears because you misunderstood something, it's showing you who you are, how you are. Like, like it's something's been touched deeply in you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think part of what this whole, what's being set up here, especially in verse seven, is that she's hitting a wall, that we're talking about fountains and, and water, and that these words have shared space with eyes the 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 concept of of weeping is part of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, the other word I want to touch on in that verse, verse seven, is wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to think of wilderness as dry and desolate land. Um, I think those of us who live in Minnesota maybe have a little bit of an edge on what wilderness might be. Sure. <laughs> um, because we have the boundary waters up north that is considered wilderness because it's away from society and it's um, far from technology and different things and contact with the world, but it's not barren right. and it's not deserty. Um, so while their desert and wilderness is barren and like you think of a desert, that isn't inherent in, in what it means to be in wilderness. Well, there's water. There's water. So in this very moment, yep. the desert has water. So that so yeah. there is provision in deserts. Yes. Or in wilderness. Yeah. If you know. Yep. If you can, if you have if eyes you know, to see. Yeah. And wilderness is one. I mean, I could I could talk about wilderness all day in the Bible. Um, <laughs> but one of the reasons wilderness is so fascinating in particular, so in, in Hebrew there, I think there are like, seven or eight different words for desert. Sure. Um, which feels like a lot in a language that doesn't have anywhere near as many words as English. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you live in a land that is surrounded by desert, it does kind of make sense that you'd have different kinds of deserts. Um, yeah. So having multiple languages, words for desert. Yeah, yeah. All of them, though have some sort of root with dryness or barrenness or desolation. Like their root words always go back to something that makes a lot of sense for that. Except for this one word, this word that normally gets translated as wilderness and not as desert in our, um, in our Bibles is the word midbar Mm. and midbar does not connect to desolation or dryness or barrenness or parchedness (laughs) Um, trying to think of some of the other ones for deserts. Um, what is a, what's the root of midbar, Daniel? Well, so it connects to what you were already talking about, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we, why we go, why we get away, f- we go up north here, or, you know, you go to the, 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 you get out into the wild because it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about being in the quiet is that maybe for the first time you can hear yourself think or hear mm-hmm. yourself speak. Right. Or hear God speak. Right. And that's the word, right? But midbar is from from word or from speech. And so it's 
right? The, the name here for wilderness or desert, however it's translated, is, is from speaking or from words. Yep. It's telling us also what's happening in this moment. Right. That this is a place um, for maybe Hagar to speak, but also Hagar to be spoken to. Exactly. So, um, all right. That's Can it. I offer one other thing? Yeah. I think when I think about the wilderness, it, it the, the problem I always have is it actually kind of does like we get these fixed ways we interpret and understand these words. So like we were talking about sin a few, uh, before, right? We think sin is this very specific thing that we did wrong, not just broken, deathly ways that we're attached to. Mm-hmm. So desert, wilderness, the, you know, the same sort of thing functions there. But for me, uh, what has happened is the the Exodus trajectory, um, the, the trajectory from Exodus 1 through Deuteronomy has really um, defined the the desert or the wilderness as simply um, n- well not as simply but as in one in one way it's the place where they're not right it's the it's the unyet place mm-hmm. in that you're not in the land that's promised the land flowing with milk and honey but it's still a place of provision um, so so you're not there um, but you're also not you're not back where you were coming from and so it's in a lot of ways seems to me to be opposite of empire or opposite of um, of society, uh, it, right? It's it's it doesn't have to mean you're 500 miles from the nearest blank, yeah. Because and if it meant that, that would be a really difficult thing to do uh, in 2023. Right. It would be hard. It's hard to get away from stuff, and so we we start to recognize that this can be. Um, there's an inner way of understanding this, where it certainly is helpful to leave town. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't have to leave town in order to find yourself in the place where you can hear yourself think you can hear mm-hmm. God speak. But you do have to turn, you know, you have to turn your phone on, do not disturb or on silent yeah. or shut it off or whatever. So anyways, yeah. for me, that Midbar wilderness has that other layer to it that I think is, yeah, you know. That's great. Yeah. I And I there's reason to believe she's not so far out in the wilderness, like what we would call wilderness. Sure. Because there's a, there's a well here. So that means there's like shepherds and nomads come to this area to get water right so she's not she's not so isolated i mean there might not be anyone there at present but this is a likely a known place this so isn't a, a well though right it's a spring well, it is a spring but still if there's a spring there's in water, the desert yeah. the shepherds know about it because if sure if, if there's lack of water in other places a spring is a place where you can get water for your sheep and sure yeah your yep. flocks yep. so um so uh, Yahweh's messenger. I like that you read messenger, not angel. Yeah. Um, angel conjures up images that may or may not be part of what's happening here. Yeah. So messenger opens it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really, yeah. yeah, I think that's helpful. Which is the word, I mean, the word for angel is messenger. We just, yeah, we've added a lot of layers to what an angel is in, right. our, in our mind, in our modern minds. Um so the messenger says to Hagar, where do you come, where, from where do you come and where are you going? Uh, full stop. Full stop. Yeah. I mean, can you answer these questions? And if you can't, yeah, it would be good too. Yeah. I think I, these are questions that we can always be asking ourselves. Right. Where have I come from and where am I going? Do I know? Yeah. So for me, one of the ways this phrase hits me is, are you awake? Yeah. 
hello, are you there? Like, and I don't, I, I don't mean the angel saying, hello, are you awake? I think it's a, the voice we read, the voice we read scripture is really an interesting thing to think about. And for me, how I hear this happening is I just hear the angel just asking her a flat, simple question. Do you, do you know where you are? Do you know where you've come from? Yeah. Can you, can you name and articulate those things? Right. And I think what so re- feels so relevant to me is that if I don't know the answer to these two questions, I also don't know what I need. <laughs> right. Like I might think I know what I need, but I don't really know what I need. Again, you're asleep and you're just on autopilot. Right. Yeah. So um, I, lo- I love this. Yeah. And this... The messengers of God, God himself, when he shows up in scripture, is very often asking questions. Right. And then I, you know, they're questions that are for us, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is primarily how to look at it, where God's asking Hagar, how well do you know yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And how how well do you know the situation you're in? How are you seeing this? Hmm. Um. So Hagar's response. Well, um, or do you want to go? Do yeah. More? Well, I just uh, you know, darn you, Genesis. It it this is you know what when God is walking in the garden in the mm-hmm. cool of the day in Genesis three after the humans have eaten yeah. from the tree before they put on the fig leaf. Yeah, where are you? God's like, where are you? And again, if we assume that it's not a question, God's like, all right, we're hide and seek. Oh shoot, I can't find them. Right, right. Yeah. You're so sneaky. <laughs> you know, it, it's man. It feels like that. Like understanding that Genesis three thing is like, you know how you what you say when you're playing hide and seek with a three year old. Yeah, where are you? And you're like, I see you with your butt out behind the table. Right. <laughs> so it's a question for them, and I think again, this is a question for her, and it positions us in this really interesting moment where this Hagar's gonna. Dis- this is a test. I think for Hagar. And what I don't mean is um, what's happened to her up to this point is a test or that God is like putting together this, this program of, you know, of, but this thing has, she's lived through it and she's living through it. And God's question is, do you know where you are? Yeah. And you know, the humans don't answer that question well in the garden. No. Um, So how, you know, what's Hagar's, What's Hagar's question? I actually think her answer is great. Yeah. So what's her answer? She says, I'm running away from Sarai. Yeah. She doesn't blame. She's not like Sarai was, was terrible to me. Yeah. She just says where, what she's doing, where yeah. she's going. But it's interesting because she only answers one of the questions. So she answers it well. She takes ownership. She doesn't blame. But she only answers one question. Which question? Where... Uh, where or from where did you come? I'm fleeing my metri- mistress. Oh, she that's interesting. She doesn't w- say where she's going. That's interesting. I guess I would have, I think you're, yeah, I would have heard um, fleeing as her destination. Oh, <laughs> sure. Which is a terrible destination. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where are you going? I, just, I have no <laughs> idea. I'm just running away. I'm running away. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's another way to, to read it is like, well, she doesn't actually answer where she's going. She just knows where she's, right. where she's come from. Right. Because it's right. Running away actually isn't a place. Right. Yeah, and I don't think she—I don't think she knows where she's going. Like she's this is a girl without a plan right now. Like she's her only plan is to get away from Sarah, Sarai, who's yeah. being mean to her. Um, and how many of us have made those choices in life where we've just fled? And everywhere an you go, there you are. 
Yeah. You ever heard that phrase? Yeah. Everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah. Right. It's uncomfortable. Well, it's probably going to follow you. Right. Uh, until you do, until you do work. <laughs> right. And if you don't know, if you don't have a destination in mind, you're just wandering. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you do with that next line? Uh, unless, sorry. Oh, did, did no, you want to go? Return to your mistress. This, to me, this is one of the most dangerous uh, phrases in a in 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 the Bible in our context. Sure. Our our current context, right? I've mm-hmm. I've heard this. I've been told that people have heard, had this used against them when they're leaving harmful situations as as a biblical proof text that. Um, that if you follow Jesus, you're supposed to let people walk all over you, including people that are supposed to be good to you. So go home. Yeah, and, and you know it's like I don't. I, I mean, I've I think I've preached Hagar three times, and I think two of the three times I've had someone come up to me mm-hmm. and want to know what I meant. Uh, sorry, not what I meant. What I thought the text meant. Oh, yeah, I. This, you're right. This is, we talked about how, I think last week I said that we were done with the most difficult pass, parts of the passage, and I think I forgot about this. It's a doozy. But yeah, I mean, it, it it can be used as a biblical excuse to return to abusers, and it can be used by the abusers as a biblical excuse to continue afflicting someone Um. And I, I think both of those are wrong interpretations. Um, I would, I would say maybe that um, we aren't getting Sarai's version of this story, and what may be happening for her back at home, and perhaps, and I would like to think this that she is maybe being met by a messenger as well. Sure. And being told, uh, knock this off. Sure. This is not how we treat people. I think that's a great that's a great way to solve the puzzle. And we have no idea if that happened. We don't know it didn't. But we don't know it didn't. And, we, it, and it is in, you know, like you marry and Joseph, you've got sort of a, a, a version there where um, the angel, an angel shows up to both of them. So, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Like, like Mary doesn't go, trust me, Joseph. Uh, and then right. God's like, yeah, Joseph, just trust Mary. It, he, he gets his own angel. Yeah. I, and then too, I think it's you, you, you step into like the character of God and the character of God is not to abuse, mm-hmm. um, the, those things, those people that, that God has made. Um, the other thing that, you know, I don't know, maybe this is just too easy. Um, but, but my response is, um, this is, this is real. Mm-hmm. So what we're not doing is exploring 20, well, at least not what I'm doing, is exploring ethics in the 21st century, but but taking, but but pulling them into a book of antiquity and saying, you know, this doesn't, this isn't good or right. Uh, where is, where is Hagar going to go? Like, right. just from a practical standpoint, um, what's the best place for a, a single woman, Who's pregnant. a pregnant woman to go? So, right it, when we move it out of the philosophical and into the concrete, it um, it become it it becomes less ideal. And but we're also like doing business in the real world where there there are 
there are bad people out there who will do bad things to you. Um, you're unsafe. She's highly, you know, at risk in this moment. And so I'm not saying, you know, it'll be better for her back with them, but I am saying where's a better place for her. Sure. I don't know. Does that seem harmful? No, I mean, there is a, there is a reality that probably the only way she survives is if she returns. So like, yeah, for your own good, you need to turn back um, for the survival of yourself and your child. You need to turn back. Which is what the angel ends up talking about Mm -hmm. as well. So we know that care and provision and future are part of this, right? The angel says to her, I'm going to multiply. I'm going to multiply your descendants. So there's a promise extended to Hagar that's like the promise extended to Abram and to Sarai. And um, and we do know that that's being thought about her, her here. Her future is being thought about. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's a, something going on with the word here. I just looked this up. Which word? Uh, afflicted. So Sarai afflicted her in verse 6, and then she's being told to return um which is the word shoe which is the word for repent um anyway side note for our previous conversation right but um let yourself be afflicted under her hand so that word for afflicted is ana yeah it's and it can be to be afflicted or to be put down or be depressed but it can also be to humble yourself um or to weaken oneself or um isn't it also the words, the word is used, did we talk about this last week? Uh, the word is the same thing that happens to them in Egypt? It is, yep. But it, it's just, it to me, it's interesting that it doesn't have to mean and be afflicted. That there's a way of where it could be you're humbling yourself before them. And for me, if I'm looking at Hagar, Hagar has not necessarily been kind to Sarai right? She's kind of flaunted her pregnancy in Sarai's face. And then Sarai's response, like, so no, no one's really above reproach in this situation. Like, Hagar has kind of, ha I'm pregnant, you're not. Um, Sarai <laughs> does not respond well and afflicts uh, Hagar in a bad way, so much that she's a pregnant woman who flees into the wilderness where she's most surely going to die if she doesn't right. find help. Um, and She's being asked to return and either let yourself be afflicted under her hand um, or um, or to be humbled under her hand. And perhaps if the if we take the interpretation humbled, is Hagar returning and apologizing for her behavior? Hmm. And if she apologizes, if she turns and apologizes and takes responsibility for her own behavior and stops taunting Sarah for being pregnant, Sarah has to face her actions in sure. light of that, and there's room for healing. Hmm. Um, the rabbis here, both uh, Rashi and then um, some other spots, they they just go, listen, this is not Sarai um, being abusive to her. Rashi says that it's um, Sarai making her work hard. <clears throat> Again, interpretations, um, but everyone is working from the, is working out the problem of, you know, God sending her back. Right. 
And I don't think it's that God's that I'm sorry, I don't think it's that they're trying to protect Sarai's reputation because the the text isn't protecting anyone's reputation. Right. Right? So um in that way, I think it's fair or safe to go. We're not talking about abuse. We're talking about, we're, we're not talking about things that we want to see happen, but we're, what we're not talking about is like, go back to someone who is harming you. Yeah. Yeah. I, it would be, it would be great if that's what's going on. <laughs> and again, we don't, we don't know because the Hebrew is a little bit obscure. Right. And we know Sar- Sarai is angry. And frustrated at this point, and she's choosing to do what feels right in her own eyes. Well, um, which is a whole. And according, if I'm, I think I'm right here. I uh, this just occurs to me. According, Sarai has yet to meet. God has not spoken to Sarai yet. Correct. So Hagar. I mean, this is subversive. This is deeply subversive. That yes. that Hagar. We are we are shown Hagar encountering God in the text before we're shown Sarai encountering God in the text. Yeah. I was going to save this to Lynn, but we can do this now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that Hagar, so the wilderness is a place where God speaks. They have, the Hebrew people have chosen to define this world, word and this experience right. based on how they experience God in the wilderness. That this is from the mouth of God, essentially, is we hear from God in the wilderness. It's the place of God speaking. And if you, you follow the trajectory of Midbar and wilderness throughout scripture, and it is consistently the place where God speaks to people. Um, it's where God meets Moses. It's where God meets the people and gives them the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the Torah. It's where they learn how to be the people of God. It's yep. where they go when they don't get it right when they're in the promised land. They have to, like, it's uh, Hosea who says, I will speak tenderly to my people in the wilderness like god takes them out of the promised land to the wilderness which is also like babylon not wilderness by the way but he takes them to the wilderness what he calls wilderness in order to speak tenderly to them because it's the only place they really hear well from god elijah when he flees he goes to the wilderness to hear from god because he knows that's the one place i'm almost guaranteed to hear from god is if i go to the wilderness the very first person in scripture who hears from God in the wilderness is not a Hebrew, is not someone in power, is not a man. It is a Hebrew, or is an Egyptian female slave. The most powerless person in society at this time is the first person who God speaks to in the wilderness. Right. Let that sink in. Right. <laughs> right. It's still sinking. I mean, so the question <clears throat> of who is who is God for? Oh, just the Hebrews, right? Right. Oh, wait. Nope. Well, and let, let's get little. Let's get provocative. Okay, I like it because in you know nowadays, if you um, you grow weary of the religious tradition you find yourself in. You just switch teams, right? Because because as we've gone global, as that's been the trajectory, right? And I'd say this is a thousand years, thousands, thousands of years trajectory that 
that what's happening is that um, gods and ways of thinking about the divine move from being um, very specific ideas in very specific areas to being um, big ideas that cover everything, right? Like <laughs> it's so the god of the god the, the god described in the in the uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament <clears throat> is not just the god of Israel and Palestine. Right? I mean, the mountain of God is in Egypt or Saudi Arabia depending on who you ask, right? right? The mountain of God. It's not in Israel. It is not in the land promised, right? It is it's somewhere else. So right there you have that. And what you have here is, hey, by the way, this has never been part of this faith at the at least the 16th chapter, but I bet you we could find if we dug around enough we could find. I mean, Abram is from Ur, right? It's it's this God shows up everywhere to Every single one. And so she's an Egyptian. So she probably has Egyptian gods. Yeah. Whatever she grew up with. So what does it mean that God is speaking to somebody who has the wrong ideas about God? Or or maybe even wrong is the wrong word. Other ideas, right? Mm-hmm. That the that the, the the entry to this is is you listening, not you being the right person. Yes. Amen. And we get that a thousand different ways, right? You get that in Egypt when in Exodus 12, 38, it's a mixed multitude that goes up. Who's who's an Israelite? Well, the ones who leave. Yeah. Right? Who's uh, Jesus says it's like John 8, right? Uh, John 6, 7, or 8, somewhere in there. He's like, if you were children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. This is not something that's guaranteed by being born to the right person in the right place at the right time. Every single one of us, the question will be, did we listen? Did we hear? Yeah. And did we did we hear? And did we listen? And if we hear and if we listen, th- there are things that open up before us. Yeah. And I think we can safely say, God is God is revealing God's self to everyone, yeah. everywhere, and all we know is what we what we've known. And that doesn't yeah. mean I have to jump teams, right? But it also means I get to engage with people of different faiths differently yeah and in conversation now i'm probably gonna you know there's people who off with his head that's fine you can have it yep okay (laughs) i'm gonna jump a little fast through this next verse through 10 uh, just because i want to spend more time um on what comes later so but um so yahweh's messenger says to her i will make your seed many yes many it will be too many for you to count. So essentially she gets, at least in part, some of the same promise that Abram has had, that even though this wasn't the way that God was intending to make this promise come about, he's still going to give it to her. Her seed is still going to be too many to count, just like Abram's seed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through with part of the promise through your line, even though this wasn't what I had intended. This wasn't the plan. I'm not going to withhold from you. So that's kind of how I see that. Um, Usually, seed is is mask is, is is spoken of of the males. Yeah. So this is also um, really a curious yeah occurrence here. Now it just means descendants, but it's still right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and we both have seed. Sure, but right. I mean, but they yeah. didn't talk about it that way. No, they didn't. Um. So then 11, and Yahweh's messenger says, here you are pregnant, you will bear a son, 
call his name Yishmael, God hearkens or God listens. For God has listened to you to your being afflicted. And here's the here's the kicker. So um I got my I'm hand. Gonna, I got gonna, my hand raised. I'm like, gonna say Woo! it before I before I read it. I'm gonna say that my important little thing that all translation is interpretation, <laughs> and this is case in point number one. I think is this like, episode gonna have an explicit tag? <laughs> maybe um, he shall be a wild ass of a man. His hand against all, hand of all against him. Yet in the presence of all his brothers, he shall dwell. Okay, so. Where, where I want to emphasize that translation is an interpretation is that we have taken thousands of years of am, like angst between Israel and uh, sure. and the descendants of the descendants of, of is uh, sorry of Israel and the descendants of Ishmael have had thousands of years of againstness happening. They have been fighting for years. And we take what we know from the last centuries and place that on this verse, sure. the way we interpret it yep. right here. Hagar's response in 13, now she called the name of Yahweh, the one who was speaking to her, you, God of seeing. For she said, have I actually gone on seeing here after seeing me? And she names the place, the well of the living one who sees me. Okay. Hagar's response is not consistent with the way that we have translated this verse, in my mind. I don't know what you mean. You don't? No, I'm, okay. I'm excited, though. I, I think Hagar's response, she sees all of what is being asked of her as positive. She's like, you have seen me, God. Like, if, if an angel comes to me and says, your son is going to be against everyone that he comes in contact with, like he's going to have issues with his brothers. They're going to be fighting constantly. And he's going to be up in the grill of his brothers for his entire life and existence, as is the, the their descendants. I'm like, crap. That's a, <laughs> that's a terrible prophecy to put on my son. Thanks a lot, God. Like I, it, it doesn't sound great. Right. So that makes me say, well, what's what's in here that I may not that I may be missing? There is a way of holding this translation that then gives us an excuse to have been at war for centuries. That Well, this was the prophecy, so there's you, nothing we can do about it. Yeah, do you mean like in the same way uh, Christians will take what's written in Revelation about Armageddon and all that stuff, and then they'll hope for it? They'll yeah. Like they almost get excited right. when, when conflict begins brewing in the Middle East, and they're like, all right, Jesus is, we got to get that war, we got to get Armageddon first, and then, and then... Jesus will return. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or or even just the, the the only solution for Israel is that we kick all the other guy out. And that's the I mean that's what both sides might like not everyone on both sides, but there are groups of each side of this conflict that that's their solution and the only one that feels viable to them. Yeah. This can also be translated. So the word that his hand is against all and hand against him does not need to be translated as against. It can be in yeah, in all. In all. So what I just feel like there's a difference and hand hand is often used as a symbol of power um in ancient near east. So being in the hand is like being in the power of a person. Um but it also to me there's this like in feels like with. 
So one way of interpreting this is that his hand will be with all and the hand of all will be with him or in him and you would dwell in the presence of your brothers. Like this can just as easily be translated as positive as it can be negative. This is how Jacob and uh, and Esau get talked about a little bit, right? Where you can understand Jacob grabbing Esau's foot as Jacob wanting relationship, wanting connection with his with his brother. Right. That it's not it's not bad necessarily. Right. Um I'm going to do a Harry Potter reference just cuz it's kind of fun to do with this. The prophecy on Harry Potter, right? Is that the a boy born in June and mid June or whatever would be the downfall of Voldemort, right? And Voldemort's choice in how to interpret that, that he goes after Harry Potter, sure. and then the the spell retracts or whatever, and so then Harry becomes one of the um, the Horcruxes, right? Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! In case you have been living <laughs> under a cave, if yeah, whatever. Um, but so because Voldemort chose to interpret it in one way, Harry did become. The right self fulfilling prophecy. Yes, it was a self fulfilling prophecy, and Neville was also essential in defeating Voldemort because he's the one who kills Nagini, the snake, which isn't the final Horcrux. So without both of them, it doesn't happen. And yet, for the past, you know, at this point, what eighteen years, everyone has thought it was Harry Potter, the right. boy who lived. He had to be the one for the prophecy. And everyone lived in such a way that it became self-fulfilling that he had to be. And yet Neville was still a part of it, the prophecy. It was actually both of them together that helped defeat him in the end. Hmm. And I, the way we choose to interpret a prophecy impacts how it's lived out. Like it doesn't, it, this is a little bit open-ended. Like you can be against your brother right. or you can be with your brother. It's your choice. And I would say every generation has that choice. It just gets increasingly more complicated the more people you throw into the mix. I was just, I took some, um, I was looking at a little bit of what's going on there with the language. Cause I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating what you just pulled out. Right. And if you read it, if you, if it's, if you do it super literally and you skip what is understood idiomatically, which, sure. you know, that's the fun thing about, um, about this is that you can, you get to do that here with, uh, with it. So like, um, uh, he will be a wild and civilized man. My, my translation is more civilized oh. than yours. Um, and then it's, 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 uh, his hand in all is literally, right? Yes. Like, uh, ya, uh, yado behol, uh, bachol is his hand, uh, hand in everyone or in all. And then it's, and um, hand of all is, they'll usually translate it as, as um, against him, but it is um, in in him. <laughs> yeah. I think it's right. Like, yeah. Yeah, is that? Yeah. In fact, Rachmiel, um, my Hebrew tutor, has got a translation, and his is, uh, and he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand in everyone and every hand in him. And then I love the way it ends off. And upon the face, um, and upon the face of all his brothers will he dwell. Yeah. It sounds delightful. Yeah. I also, uh, can I go somewhere else real quick? Yeah. If we go to verse 11, if we back up, mm-hmm. that Yahweh has listened to your suffering. Yeah. This is, again, the thing that happens at the end of Exodus 2. Yes. Before everything starts, God hears their cries. So 
Um, if we go back to where we started and we're talking about fountains and tears and water and wells and running, getting to the end. And, you know, I don't know why this is the way it is, but um, something happens when we, when we cry out, when right. our, when we actualize, when we bring into reality, when we embody the things that are happening in sort of our, um, the parts of our body that could be invisible to someone else. Like you can feel sad, but it's not until you reveal sad that, that things know. And somehow, some way, and I hear this question a lot, um, you know, why does God wait until they cry out? Couldn't God see their suffering? Uh, Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I don't, I actually don't know why. I just know that the consistent testimony in our, in, in the stories of those who have gone before us is, um, when we cry out is when when God when when something happens. Right. There's a difference between court ordered ordered rehab and me hitting rock bottom and choosing to go in myself. Like it's much more likely to be effective if I've chosen it for myself because I know it's like something has to change as opposed to I got caught and I'm being forced to do this, so my heart's not really in it, and nothing's actually going to change because I'm going to go back to my old ways as soon as I get out. So now and, we're talking about repentance, right? It's it's yeah. That's we have to see it ourselves right. in order for real change to happen. Right. And want it. Yeah. Because some of us see it and are like, mm. I like my life better this way. And my answer to that is, okay, mm-hmm. God is infinitely patient with you. Right. And and you're not changing God's heart towards you at all. You have not shifted in one, one, one iota <laughs> that God's disposition towards you is you are my beloved. You're just not living like it. Right. Well, and I think to offer a level of interpretation of the whole Bible, but this is just the story. It's over and over and over again, we're getting the story of we see what we think is good and we reach for it and we do things in our own way. And then it turns out to not be great and we cry out in our suffering and then God comes to our rescue and hears us and sees us and loves us and restores us in some kind of way. And then the next generation hits repeat. Right. And so we get this story on individual levels. We get the story on a corporate level. We get it. It's the story of Hagar. It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the exile. It's the story. It's well, the story. Well, and Hagar's story, story is the story of Genesis 3. Right. And Ab- I mean, it's Abram's story. Is a st- it, 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 they're all the same. It's all the same big narrative or the big mm-hmm. thing that's happening, which is the counter between God and humanity. And then the question is, how will the humans respond to right. divine presence, divine invitation? And that's the that's yeah. And and buckle up and watch because every generation does it differently. But let's get it let's get it also straight. It might appear that there's a thousand different responses, but there's a couple, <laughs> right? Right? They just all play out. They look different. Well, yeah, it it, it looks different, but really the question is: Are you going to shuv? Are you going to return? Are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Love your neighbor as yourself, yeah. or are you going to choose to look out for your own interest needs and say, "Am I my am I my brother or sister's keeper to the voice of God?" And yeah. you know. And that's what's happening here. They're not treating her well. Yeah. And she is in kind, you know, karma. Um, she's returning what she's been given. Someone somewhere has to break the cycle. Right. And Jesus is the one who breaks the cycle. Well, yes. I think that's a huge part of what's happening on the cross is it's a crack in the wheel, <laughs> if you will. Um, a big crack in the wheel that that we can, we now have a way to walk out 
yeah. from the from from the slavery from the the narrowness of a life having to continue to do that in order yes. to find life. Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, can I ask a question? I don't know that you'll have an answer. Okay. You, maybe you will. Um, but I was just wondering if you were to give God a name, what would you name God? Oh, oh, oh. And here's what's really fun is well, you could sit here and wait for, we can, we can give this all the time in the world and then I'm just going to edit it out. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll tell them how many minutes it um, takes you. Well, first of all, I think there's a reason that there's a reason that God has like, I don't know how many names, countless names in scripture Yeah, because he is experienced in countless ways. And names don't define God. No. They describe God. Maybe you, we, we could say they give God definition, but they don't, right? Like definition as it's like, oh, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it's, it's a description of who God is. But really a description of who God is, is a description of how we've experienced God. Okay. I have, can I, can I narrow it down to two? You, listen, you can have as many as you want. This is, as they say, well, your party. if I can... <laughs> If I can have as many as I want, we're going to be here a long time. But if I think I could narrow it down to two, okay. that would be primary for me. The God of love mm. and the God of infinite chances. Mm. Now you have to answer your own question. Yeah, well, it's unfair because I've been thinking about it. Um, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure the shelf life on this response because <clears throat> my, my brain is constantly reshuffling everything. But one thing that seems to be deeply consistent is that I know I'm awake. See, five years ago, I would have said, I know I'm near God when these things are true, Mm -hmm. but that's not how I think about it anymore. I'm always ever near God, right? It's the, it's from the passage this weekend, right? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's what the father says to the son, the old son, uh, the older son and the prodigal son, like everything I had, like there's this always everness of me that's always ever available to you. And it's what we actually see demonstrated, um, with the, when the younger son comes home is that, um, while he was still a long way off, the father was still present in the story, right? Looking and longing and waiting. And that means, that means that the, the, the son who has gone off and has turned back is always ever in the heart mind of God, which to me is like, well, so always ever. So here's what I would say. When I know, when I sense delight and joy, I know I'm aware of, I know I'm living aware and awake to God with me because what happens when I remember the goodness of God, when I remember the presence, when I remember the love of God, mm-hmm. when I remember, like you said, the infinite chances of God, when I'm awake to that, when I'm alive in it, I feel joy and delight mark me and, or they mark how I feel, whether it comes out, I don't know. Um, you know, do I have RBF? I don't know. But, but that's, that's what I would say is no, I don't. No, okay. not at all. Del- I, del- I do. <laughs> Um, I just, that's my, that's my name is, is God is, is delight. Mm. God is joy. Um, or, or the God of delight and joy. Yeah. Cause I, cause I actually think it's pretty beautiful and special in scripture that the only time we really get like a defining phrase of God is when, when John says God is love, right? God is loving, not loving, yeah. <laughs> but God is love. Yeah. Um, so, so, but joy, God of joy, delight, um, uh, is my, mm, I love that. I, all that you said makes me want to add a third. Yeah, do it. Just Emmanuel. Mm. Yeah, God totally. with us. God is God with us. Right. That's... With us always and forever, no matter what. Even if we're hitting the wall and we're running away and we've 
afflicted and been afflicted. Yeah. Even then. Even then. Even then. Even if we're not, if we don't mark all the boxes of being powerful and male and Hebrew and all the things. Right. I mean, amen. Amen. Toodles. (laughs) Every week.